Thank you, Claire. It's a beautiful song and beautifully sung. And thank you. And also, Murray. Thank you, Murray. Now, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 6? John chapter 6. I got kind of a hoarseness in my voice today, so if you just give me some leeway. Uh, every now and then I'll cough to just wake you up, but every now and then just give me some leeway. Um, now, it is, uh, John chapter 6 is uh, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Gospel of John. But before we get to our Bible study today, uh, let me say to remember um, um, Stacy and Ty in your prayers. Their son, uh, Will, had a bad fall in Hattiesburg. Just tells you uh, how fragile life is. I mean, he's a college kid, and, and all of a sudden he's in intensive care. So just remember them and remember Will uh, in your prayers. A uh, young man is, um, I don't know all that they're doing for him, but anyway, he's, he's going to be in the hospital for quite some time. So remember them in your prayers. Also, uh, I'd like to say that um, Harold and Cheryl Watts, have been married for 988 years, I think. Uh, but uh, So uh, this is their 60th anniversary, and uh, uh, Harold told me that if I mentioned them that there would be a big check in the offering plate, so I'm looking for that big check in the offering plate. But would you guys stand and let's give them a hand. Would you do that? Amen. You guys stand. Thank God for that family. It's good to see Phil and Phil and, and my son Mike were in high school together and were at Auburn together. They both, both spent a large part of their time at Auburn in the library. Isn't that right? Y'all in the library? You were lost somewhere. You couldn't find you. Yeah, but anyway, good to see you. And God bless this family. Uh, I've known them for quite some time. and Thank God for them. Now, would you turn to somebody next to you and tell them what is the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. Would you do that? Just turn to somebody next to you and tell them what's the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. And it's uh, chapter 13. No, I just thought I'd throw that out there. See if you, that was cruel, wasn't it? Wasn't that mean for me to do that? You look and you see it's, it's such a long chapter. Uh, it's part of Jesus at his height, but then he's at his lowest point. Uh, how fickle uh, crowd approval is. It's up here, and then it's down here. And chapter 6 is a really transitional time between Jesus when he was in Galilee. He had been in Jerusalem, and they went by the pool of Bethesda. And when he went by the pool of Bethesda, there was a man who had been there for 38 years. And if he could just get in that pool, then he would be healed. And for 38 years, he had tried and tried and tried and tried and hadn't made it. And so finally, Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? Because you get to that point where you're disappointed and disappointed and disappointed, and after a while, you just quit. And he had gotten to that place where he had just quit. 
And so Jesus looked at him and said to him, and the Greek word there is anastasis, stand up. And he didn't want to stand up. He didn't have any desire to stand up. He just wanted to just sit there and ride out the rest of his life. But Jesus not only gave him the power to stand up, but he gave him the will to stand up. Now, there's one thing to stand up, there's another thing to want to. And how much that want to had long left him a long time ago. But you can be disappointed so many times that you just, I don't care. I just quit. But it's amazing how much it happened to him. Rise up, take up your bed and walk. And from now on out in Jerusalem, they're going to look for ways to bring Jesus to his death. And so the, the leadership there is after him because he had broken the Sabbath. And they didn't notice that a man had been healed. But they got caught up in the fact that you couldn't carry your bed on the Sabbath day. And how nitpicky sometimes we can be. But the man himself, how much it happened to him, and he kind of disappears in the crowd. And so Jesus leaves Jerusalem, and he comes up to Galilee, where he had had his most favorable response. And there's a crowd that's there at Galilee, and they're waiting to see him. And chapter 6 tells about that crowd, how he deals with that crowd in Galilee that's waiting for him. Now, if you have your Bibles, look at John 6, beginning with verse 18. And in honor of God's word, would you stand as I read for us, starting in verse 18. We've just gone through a doubter. Um, I've never met anybody by that name, but evidently they stuck it on a hurricane somewhere. But it was a tremendous storm. Uh, my son was in Tampa, and he had to mandatory evacuate. And so all the destruction of a storm at sea. But what about a storm in life? Storms in life happen to all of us. Storms in life, you face them. And it almost looks like you wonder where God is in the middle of storms in life. So the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is not in their boat. And as they are trying to row to the other side of the sea, all of a sudden this storm appears. And it's a heavy storm. Sea of Galilee is in a kind of bucket kind of basin there. And there's mountains on all sides. And all of a sudden these squall lines come through. And when the squall lines come through, there's this heavy storm that happens. And they're in the middle of a storm. So look at verse 18. And the sea arose, and it arose quickly. I have seen those uh, storm fronts come through when a hurricane comes through. And there's this wall of water that's there. So the sea is rising. And it rose in, uh, by reason of great wind that blew. So there's a tremendous wind that's blowing. These guys are trying to row their boat. So when they had rowed about five or 20 or 30 furlongs, which is about 10 miles in give or take, they're surprised. They see Jesus walking on the water. And I've heard a lot of people try to mimic some of his miracles, but nobody's ever mimicked this one. Walking on the water. And as he's walking on the water, he saith unto him in verse 20, I am, be not afraid. 
Now, the most given command in Scripture is be not afraid. The most given promise in Scripture is I'm with you. So whatever you got to face, whatever comes our way, here's this promise of those who have placed Christ first place in their life. It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they had went. All of a sudden, they arrived where they had been trying to get to for all this time. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. I don't know if Selma has a Burger King. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to How many of you have ever been to a Burger King? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Think, Harold, you can take Cheryl there today to Burger King. Just let her eat anything on the menu there. <laughs> but they're being sued because they advertise the Whopper. And what they advertise is a whole lot more than you ever get. There's a meat that's all the way on the sides. There's condiments in there that look so pretty. But you go to a Burger King, you won't get that size hammer, ha hamburger at a Burger King. You get a small rendition of what it's like. They promise one thing, and then they deliver something else. And isn't that the way it is in the world in which we live in? The promise of Scripture is this. Whatever I promise, says Jesus, I will always fulfill. And there are not always things you can count on. You can't always count on Burger King, but you can count on what the Lord says in this book because these are promises that stand the test of time forever and ever and ever and ever, even past death do we part. It is there forever. And when I first got to Fairhope, there was a hurricane, and it was Hurricane Dennis, and it came across Pensacola and in between Pensacola and Gulf Shores, and it just wiped out those uh, condominiums that were there. Uh, it, came, it, it hit the coast almost as a Category 5, but it entered the land as a Category 3. And there was a representative from our church, and he was going in a helicopter to just view all those, that destruction there at Gulf Shores. And he asked me if I'd like to go along with him. And I said, sure. So we would fly over all these homes, and you could tell those that had been built some time ago, they didn't make it. They didn't have the stamina to withstand all that, uh, that water that came, came forward. And they were kind of old and been there for the newest ones, the newest condominium condominium had been built according to kind of standards that were there and they were able to withstand and it took some kind of destruction but they were able to withstand the things that came their way and they were able to survive some part of that and what was written about them is that they had two things that were very important one is this they had a good foundation and they needed a good foundation because that wind and the water shook those foundations. But they had flexibility. And flexibility is something you can withstand as it comes. They're able to bend and not break. They're able to take on the charge of what's coming their way 
and withstand what's coming their way and kind of go with it for a while, but then pull back and shake. And one of the things, or two of these things that Jesus and, and John is trying to build into his disciples, and he's trying to build into me and you as we face life. Give us a foundation, and there's no other foundation than in Jesus Christ. Foundation is in Jesus Christ, and that's our foundation. But it has flexibility, and that we are uh, exclusive, and that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. But we reach out to all kinds of people. There is no uh, prejudice in God's word. It's to be for all kinds. It's inclusive. But it's also, there is no shaking the foundation. It's got to be in Jesus Christ. And no other foundation will survive the storms of life that come our way. One of the things that I did when I was in Thomaston is that I taught a uh, men's class, kind of like the Maverick class here. But it was just kind of, um, I don't know, what, what would you call the Maverick class here? I don't know, what do you call them? Men of high wisdom, amen, would that be, would y'all call it men of high wisdom? Um, so it was a class, and the leader of that class was a guy named Winston Mosley, and Winston Mosley came in, and he had egg on his tie, and I was a brand new preacher there, I was just, and so how do you tell, he was the chairman of the deacons, how do you tell him he's got egg on his tie, that could be a controversial kind of thing. So finally, I told him, I said, uh, I just had to. I took him off to the side, and I said, Winston, you got egg on your tie. So he told me, he said, that could have been the end of my career as a pastor at Thomaston Baptist Church. But he told me, he said, I'm so glad you told me, because my wife told me this morning, don't put your tie on before you eat breakfast. And if I didn't, you hadn't told me, I would have to go back and tell her, she was right. And he said, you know, I'd rather do anything than go back and tell her that she was right. And there's something about us that doesn't want to admit that you're right and I am wrong. So you need to practice that. So turn to somebody next to you and say, you are right. Would you do that? Just turn to somebody and say, you're right. Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't make you feel better? Well, Jesus was sharing with the crowd and, and they didn't like what he had to say. But what he said was true. And sometimes it's hard for us to say to Jesus, you're right and I'm wrong. But just that's where humility begins. That's where we begin to say to the Lord, yes, you're right, and I'm wrong. Now, he was sharing some hard things with them. And when you read this chapter, you see all the hard things that he was sharing with them. The Catholics use this as to support their uh, doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, Jesus told him, this is my flesh, and you must eat my flesh. And he told him, this is my blood, and you must drink my blood. And they had a hard time with that, especially Jewish people, because they don't eat those kind of things. They're very careful in what they're supposed to eat. So when Jesus said this, he's saying it to, to put him first 
in their lives, to bring him to the inside of their lives and let him rule from your heart to be, to love them with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the Catholics have taken this to be, transubstantiation means when the Roman Catholics have their uh, Lord's Supper, what we see the cracker and the juice as a kind of symbol of Jesus' body and his blood that was shed for us. What the Roman Catholics say is this is the, um, it turns into the real body of Christ and the real blood of Christ. So when they take their, they call it a sacrament that brings salvation to them. But as Baptists, we say, eh, this is, Jesus is not talking about this coming to his real body and his real blood. It's representative of what he was giving to us and it's representing for what we accept him in the depths of our soul. So Jesus is telling them that he is God, and they have a hard time doing, dealing that. Nobody but God can forgive sins, but they're struggling with that. And you can understand why they're struggling. He said he is, he is the Christ that's come down from God. And he says that he is the only way to receive salvation. You cannot have salvation any other way than to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and invite him into this place that he deserves, first place inside your heart and inside your being. And it was a hard saying, and they struggle with that. And we still struggle with that. The world in which we live in says there must be another way. I mean, we can be good, and everybody learn this, and Everybody be nice to everybody around them. No. Bible says Jesus Christ is the only way to have eternal life. So he's building into his disciples. He starts off at this chapter with 5,000 men that he feeds. Ends up this chapter with 12 who are there with him. Everybody else is kind of left but he is going to change this world with these 12 men. And one is going to be 11. One of them is Judas. Because when you're committed to the Lord, when you do what he says, you see what he does. And he takes these 11. And the greatest movement this world has ever seen is Christianity as it moves out all the way around the world. And it's still moving all the way around the world. He calls for that commitment. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. It's not a thing I can give him this part and this part and give to the Lord and this part I can give to this and whatever it is. Put him first. That's what he calls for. Now he's, he's got about a less than a year to be with his disciples before he finally goes to Jerusalem and he's crucified on the cross. So he builds that time to build some things in, his, in their lives. So if you have your Bibles, look back at chapter 6. These are the kind of three qualities that he's building into his disciples' life. And if you're a disciple of Christ, you need these kind of problem, things built into your life. In verse 5, of chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company, 
He saith unto him, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? And Philip said, I don't know. He's doing this to test him. We don't have enough money. Let's see what I can do with this situation if you'll give it to me. See what I can do with this situation if you'll give it to me. And they had five loaves and two fish. And all of a sudden, Jesus fed the crowd from five loaves and two fish. And then they collected the leftover fragments that were left. Now, what's the, so often what we do with our problem is when we've exhausted all our other areas, we finally bring it to Jesus. And how much better it would be to bring it to him from the very beginning. Lord, here's the problem. I can't handle this. It's bigger than I am. So would you take that problem and handle it? Use me however you want to use me, but use me in this way so that this problem can at least have your touch into it. And what he's saying here to the disciples is there is no such problem that is bigger than I am. Are you ready for that? Now, again, if I was in the church of God, they'd be hopping over the pews by now. You're sitting there like a bunch of cows looking at a new gate or something like that. <laughs> Think about that. Uh, why is the math book so sad? Because it's full of problems. And that, man, that's heavy, that's over your head. I just want to run that by Phil and heard that at the library at Auburn, didn't you, Phil? And whatever your problem, God is there with you. So one thing the disciples need to know when they go out into this world and try to share the gospel, and they're going to do that, they're going to run into problems. And you're going to run into problems. And one of the best things you and I can do is say, Lord, I don't want to handle this. This is bigger than I am. And I want you to help me to deal with this problem. And would you come into my moment and help me to deal with this problem? So one of the qualities that they had to learn as disciples was there's no problem that overwhelmed Jesus and we bring him whatever we have and put it at his feet and say Lord just take care of this problem but there's a second quality and if you we read about this morning uh, in verse 15 verse 15 after Jesus had fed the 5,000 then they wanted to make him king and that's what he came here to be the Messiah but not in the terms that they had of making him king. We want him king on our terms, not on his terms. And he could have started a revolution at that point because that's when they wanted to. They were in the hills outside and outside of Galilee and, and they could have started a revolution at that point. 
But Jesus saw through that and saw where it was going. And in the middle of that, they wanted him to be their kind of Messiah, not the kind of Messiah that God wanted him to be. And so he dismissed the crowd. He called the meeting to be over. And he sent the disciples away because Judas could have thought, well, I'll be secretary, I'll be treasurer. That was one of the jobs he had. Peter said, well, I'll be his uh, secretary of state or whatever. And they could have all got up into this kind of what it's like to be popular and, and run the revolution. But that's not Jesus' revolution. And so he pushed the disciples out, put them in a boat, and they start going across the sea. And as they go across the sea, this wind comes that is bigger than anything they could row against. And instead of moving forward, they're kind of just standing still. And they've rowed and rowed and rowed, and they've gotten nowhere. And the wind's against them. And they're kind of just in that place, and they're wondering what's going to happen. These are men who have been on the sea, but now the sea is in its wrong kind of against them, and they could all be lost at sea. And the waves were getting higher and higher and higher. And they're moving nowhere. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And he comes walking on the very thing that they were afraid of. He comes walking on the way. I like that the gospel song talked about footprints in the way. Comes walking on the way. And he gives them this kind of message. Stop being afraid. I'm here. There are times that we need direction. There are times we need to know which way to go and we want his wisdom. But there are times we just need for him to be there with us. And when Job's friends came to see him, the best part of Job's friends ever did for him, he had lost his houses, he had lost his, his land, he had lost his children, he had lost everything that he had. And these friends came and they just sat with him. Because there are times that you just need, you don't need anybody to say anything. You don't have the right words to say. You just sit there and hold their hand. Or maybe put, their, put your arm around them. I don't understand because I've never had this kind of situation. But something about your presence, just being there, makes a powerful difference. Maybe you represent Christ in that moment. But what's needed is not the right words to say because you often don't have the right words to say. What's needed is somebody to say, I'm here. Now, I remember when uh, Susan's dad was dying, there was a couple from our church that just sat outside. And when they sat outside in, in the hospital, they just said, we're here. If you need us for anything, we're here. We're right outside. We don't have all the words to say. We don't know all the uh, cliches to use. We don't know any of those things. All we want you to know is we're here. And sometimes that's all you need. Just give me a sense of your presence, Lord. I need your presence with me. So the disciples needed to understand not only that there was no problem that was bigger than Jesus that he couldn't handle, 
But they also need, need to know that when we were in those storms and the wind is against us and everything seems to be going the wrong kind of direction, there's a presence. If you look for him, you'll find him. And somehow he holds on to you and lets you know that I'm not sure where this is going. I know where it's going, but you're not sure where this is going. But I want you to know this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The disciples needed to know that. And you and I need to know that. Now here's the third quality. If you have your Bible, would you look all the way at the end of the chapter of John? John chapter uh, 6, verse 66. The more Jesus makes demands, the more they walk away. Um, as you can, the disciples, I'm sure, were watching that and saying, listen, you need to change your message. We need to have a fellowship. We need to serve some chicken out here or something because everybody else is walking away. And it got down to just the 12 disciples. In verse 66, from that time on, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. You're asking too much. I'll give you a response, but I got my own priorities, and you're making too many demands, and I can't handle this. So they turned around and walked away. There's only the 12 that's there. At one time, there was all this crowd that was around him. Maybe as many as 20,000. But Jesus is looking for commitment. And I'm not sure all the disciples looked around. Man, look at all these empty seats that used to be here filled with people. So Jesus said unto them, you want to go away also? Man, I just think that's harsh. Uh, I would have cried, I suppose, and said, you guys stay with me. You can't leave me. But Jesus said, you want to go also? And then Simon says this, Lord, where do we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. You can't find it anywhere else. Walmart doesn't sell eternal life. You can't find it anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. And we believe and we know that you have the words of life. And that's a definite article there. It's not a word of Christ. You are the word of Christ. You are Christ, the son of the living God. And have not I chosen you. There's the idea that Jesus took the initiative. When, whenever you and I come to Christ, it is always the Lord who takes the initiative with us. He gives us the invitation. But you and I can back away. He gives us that choice. But he brings us to himself and we can choose to back away. Now eternal life is an important phrase. This appears first here in John but appears in other places. Eternal life. Eternal life begins in the moment that you and I receive Christ as our Savior. 
But Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how is this possible? It's possible by the Holy Spirit who comes to cleanse us when we invite him into our life and he cleanses us and all of a sudden our soul comes alive. Until we invite Christ into our life, it is not a living being, but he, just like he blew upon breath upon and it became a living being. The moment you and I invite Christ into our life, we become a living soul. And eternal life begins at that moment that we invite Christ into our life. But it's also eternal life is something that goes in, as we increase. As he increases in our life, we decrease. It's kind of a, we never arrive in this earth. But we do follow him in this life and we become more like him. And the end result is for Christ to just work in our life so that we put down less of ourselves and include more of himself into our life. So eternal life is not only a beginning process, but it is a continuing process. So that you and I should look like Christ more this year than we did last year. We will never arrive in this life. But we ought to be improving more to look more like Christ in our life. And then eternal life is after death. For me to live, said Paul, is Christ, and to die is gain. So eternal life begins, it continues, but it also goes past this life into the next life. And as is promised, you cannot get that anywhere else. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. It also says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I will, I'll come back and receive you into myself. Peter Marshall uh, was the chaplain of the Senate. He was a uh, Scotsman who preached at New York Avenue uh, Presbyterian Church. And he had the um, devotional for the Westport cadets. And as he was going there, this was in 1940, and there were more officers killed out of that class than any other class at Westport. They were right on the edge of World War II. So he had this devotional that he was going to tell them but while he was riding there, just, God just put something else on his heart. So you need to talk to him about death. And he didn't know why. Just God just kind of put it on his heart. And in that devotional, he gave him this story about, about a little boy who asked his mother. He said, what does it mean to die? And the little boy had, had cancer, and he was right on those, the edge of, of death. And, and so his mother just turned around where she was and said, Lord, give me the right words to say. And he says, she turned back to him and she said, Johnny or whatever his name was, you remember when you go out playing and playing and you're playing and you get so tired after you've been playing that you come in and you fall asleep on the couch? And then your dad comes in and he picks you up and he takes you upstairs and he puts your pajamas on and puts you in your 
in your um, bed upstairs so that you go to sleep downstairs but you wake up upstairs. That's the promise of eternal life that is to those who place Christ as their Savior. Now one of the hardest times I ever had was to talk to my dad about his Christian life. Um, my dad didn't, didn't go to church when, you know, when I was growing up. He was a great father to me, but he never went to church. My mom would bring every evangelist that came along at Central Baptist Church. She'd bring them to our house, sick them. <laughs> My dad would resist every one of them. He'd find something to do uh, while mom and I um, entertained the evangelist. But God just said, you need to talk to your dad. And so as Dad and I were riding, and I'd have to ride with him one time when he was, when he would go to these sales meetings. And on the way to one sales meeting, I said, "Dad, are you a Christian? You don't know how much struggle I had in just asking him that. You don't know the struggle that was there." And I said, "Dad, are you a Christian?" And he said, I'm all right. And he wanted to change the subject. And I said, but dad, it's not to be all right. It's to know Christ as your savior. And there was this quiet for a long time. Somewhere later on, my dad accepted Christ as his savior. Um, he became a deacon at Central Baptist Church and then when they moved to Gastonburg he became a deacon in those churches there and there was this new person inside of him but at least I started something inside of his heart that God put on my heart I didn't want my dad going to hell now would you bow your heads with me for just a moment and let me ask you this, is there somebody that you need that God may have put on your heart? Because when they get to that point where they have their last breath, I want to know that I've said something to them about their salvation. Just for a moment. Is there somebody you need to talk to and just bring up the subject. Are you a Christian? Lord, you hear our hearts. You know where we are. You know those around us that need to just hear us say something. Bring up the subject at some place or at some time. Help us to be faithful. I am so glad that I said something to my dad. It's a joy that only those who obey the Lord find. Thank you, Father, for being with us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Now, our invitation is only trust him. It's in 465. So if God is moving you to make, maybe he's put something on your heart. Maybe you have never really trusted him. Maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you've never invited Christ into your moment, whatever that decision may be. Or maybe you're not in a church membership. You, in this life, we're to help the church do everything it can until the Lord comes and takes the church home. Maybe you need to be here standing with this church and saying, I want to be with this church body as we face our lives in Jesus Christ at this moment. Whatever that decision, hymn number 465.